Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's a Pledge Drive special edition of the program today. My special guest for the hour is Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City. We're going to reach into the archives for parts of some of our favorite recent episodes of the program. We'll hear from A.B. Irvine, Regina Whiteskunk Lopez, and Kirsten uh, Johanna Allen talking about themes in A.B. Irvine's book, Desert Cabal, which is a response in part to Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire. Ken Sanders was a friend of Edward Abbey. We'll also hear about uh, from Jeremy Jackson, author of Breakpoint, Reckoning with America's Environmental Crises. And we'll present part of an interview with uh, legendary river runner Ken Slight also a friend of uh, Ken Sanders, talking about Glen Canyon. We'll invite uh, your pledge uh, of support to UPR to ensure that Access Utah continues uh, strong. And uh, Ken Sanders, thanks so much for joining us again. Good morning, Tom. Thank you. Good Good morning. Um, I should mention here at the beginning that uh, we have a dollar-for-dollar match uh, this morning, up to $500. Gail and Ned Weinshaker, wonderful supporters of the program, have generously offered to match dollar-for-dollar all pledges made uh, up to $500. So up to $500, your pledge is doubled uh, today. That'll help us to get to our daily goal of $7,500. Here's the number, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can reach us to UPR at uh, upr.org, upr.org. So Ken Sanders, um, I imagine you'd probably be interested in Amy Irvine's book, Desert Cabal. uh, What's your response to that book? Uh, I have a copy sitting in front of me, Tom, as we speak. All right, excellent. Uh, Amy's an old friend of mine. uh, I first met her a dozen years ago when she uh, we had an autograph party for up here for her first book, uh, Trespass. Uh, living on the edge of the promised land, I've um, got to know her and her now teenage daughter Ruby quite well over the years. Uh, desert Cabal is certainly—it's called a Desert Cabal, a new season in the wilderness. And I should say, Amy's patterned it after uh, Abby's classic Desert Solitaire itself, and it—it it started out as an introduction to the the uh, facsimile manuscript edition. Uh, of Desert Solitaire that Back of Beyond Books published down in Moab, and it grew and morphed into a book of its own. And a lot of old-time Abbey fans have taken it wrong, I think. I mean, you know, people are, can have their own opinions. I'm an old-time Abbey fan, and uh, she's done a great job of it, I think. She she pays homage and respect to to throughout the book but she also she she's written the whole this whole hundred-ish page book as a, in a form of a letter to the late author and she takes him to task for some of his attitudes uh, about things like uh, women and families and just all manner of things and I think she does it out of love and respect but yes some of it can be a little uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll read you just a little section. Okay, oh, by great. the way, they asked me to do a blurb for it, and I did. Um, my blurb, which is buried in, inside the book, they didn't put it on the covers. There wasn't a woman in Ed Abbey's trailer in Arches back in the 1950s. There is one now, and she has a room and a voice of her own. Mm. That, that's so her let blurb. Let me just read yeah. you from her introduction, Okay. Okay, yeah. Uh, And and each of the chapters in this book are laid out like the chapters in Desert Solitaire. 
Hey, Mr. Abbey, can you hear me down there? This yoke of sun is broken on a horizon sodden too by saguaros, and I've hopscotched my way through crypto and cacti, sidestepped a sidewinder and given two middle fingers to an Air Force jet that buzzed me while my pants were down to pee on the playa. And now I'm squatting graveside in this lower Sonoran desert that is your resting place, a desert that has... Thank the horned gods not succumb to the Mad Max lunacy in Moab. We should talk about the Red Rock country of Utah. Desert Solitaire was published 50 years ago this year, and as timeless as that book is, things are changing in ways even your prescient, nimble mind could not have imagined. I'm going to sit here a minute and take in the surroundings. This is a desert more soft and yielding than those of southern Utah, one less feverish in color, less torturous in form. It's a bit easier to breathe here, isn't it? This place doesn't excite me, not the way canyon country does, the extremes in our nature. And it holds the whole of the borderlands, both sides, denying our tendency towards sharp stick divisions and dumbed-down dualities. So it's interesting, Mr. Abbey, that you chose here to lie in situ, given your aversion to immigration. Then again, maybe you wanted to return to Arches for a perennial season, but the park's tumescent popularity dissuaded. After all, you predicted rightly that the solitude you found there once upon a time was a much diminished resource. If it was going, going, it's now nearly gone. In Arches, your bones could not possibly turn to dust in silence. Anyway, that's just a portion of the introduction to Desert Cabal. And uh, Amy's done a very lively job of taking on um, a lot of sacred cows and and myths. Uh, but again, Tom, she does it out of love or respect mm-hmm. for Edward Abbey. Now, you you obviously knew Edward Abbey, a friend of his, uh, and well-versed in his works. Uh, what would you say about uh, some of the problems, you know, the, with, with women, with families, um, some of those things that uh, Amy Brand does take, take on in the Desert Cabal? Well, in immigration uh, issues, things like that, um, uh, all human beings are complicated. We're all not one thing or another. Um you know, Ed, Ed's issues with immigration dealt with, this goes back, you know, to the 1950s and 60s, mind you, dealt more with population, that, you know, the, 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 the 900-pound gorilla uh, sitting on all of our shoulders, if you will. And that's the same thing with the families. Uh, there's, we didn't have six billion people on the planet now, or seven, or whatever we have. And for Edward Abbey, and I, goodness knows, I don't, I don't want to speak for Ed Abbey. He never needed somebody to speak for him alive, and I don't think he does deceased either. Just read his books, and you'll quickly be informed of his views. And I don't believe he was a racist. I don't believe he was a sexist. I think his issues were about overpopulating the world and the fact that we're breeding the planet to death. And you can read Abby and, and make up your own mind. I was reading uh, something you, uh, an interview you gave about uh, Abby, and you, they ask you where to start with Abby. I think you said we'll start with Desert Solitaire. Is that your advice? 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think you do. I mean, Desert Solitaire and Monkey Wrench Gang, his two classics, if you will, although Ed himself dreaded that term and never... Because Ed Abbey's definition of a classic was a book that everybody talked about, but it sat unread on the shelves. Well, Ed, uh, you were wrong because you've written two books that have turned out to be classics, Desert Solitaire and The Monkey Wrench Gang, but they're alive, they're read. Um, we sell hundreds of new copies every year, and every used Edward Abbey book that comes in the store flies out. Um, his books are alive and well and, and reaching new generations. And, you know, his 30th anniversary commemoration of his death would have been just a couple of weeks ago on March 14th when he, when he died, hmm. 1989. 89, yeah. Well, um, we are uh, raising money here to uh, promote conversations like this one about important uh, topics uh, such as uh, land um, and uh, conversations about uh, important figures uh, such as uh, Edward Abbey. Uh, and uh, Ken Sanders, I wonder what you would say uh, to, uh, to listeners uh, about the need for support for this kind of conversation. Well, well, let's 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 stick with the Abbey theme for a minute more. I'll, I'll I'll answer that with two quotes: "The wilderness needs no defense, only more defenders. Growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell." You know, why are we just overproducing everything on the planet? Why are we selling off our heritage and our legacy and the the the, the lives of our children and grandchildren to produce more of this, that, or the other. I'm not exactly a Marie Kondo fan, uh, mind you, but maybe we do have too much stuff. And there's no question we have too much greed. Why do we sell wilderness off for energy to get us to survive, to drive our four-wheel drives another week? Uh, and... And then it's gone. Every wilderness battle, every time we lose, and it's not wilderness, it's not wilderness as an abstract. It's as part of the whole, what, uh, you know, what Joseph Wood Crooch called the great chain of life. It's not about a pretty mountaintop or a rock or a river or a desert or what have you. It's about the whole interconnectedness of life. If we're killing off our oceans and feel, filling our whales up with 85 pounds of plastic, uh, I would suggest that we're doing something wrong, and we need to correct that, not just for our own sake, but for future generations' sake. And we need voices like Utah Public Radio, which, by the way, Tom, I uh, drove to Albuquerque uh, a couple of weeks ago for a book fair down there, and I was pleased down in southern Utah to be able to, one of the few channels that would come in was um, UPR. Oh, so we need your voice. We need we need these voices that give us information that that you're not going to hear otherwise. Well, here's how to support the conversations like these. Appreciate that, Ken Sanders. Uh, the, the number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, call now, your support for UPR, and uh, I definitely personally appreciate your support for Access Utah. UPR.org is the other place you could go, UPR.org. Uh, uh, let's, uh, and a reminder that uh, here's an added incentive. You get the programming, you get to keep the programming coming strong. Uh, 
by calling in now, renewing or adding us an extra gift or becoming a new member of Utah Public Radio. But uh, right now, up to $500, Gail and Ned Weinshanker have offered to match dollar for dollar all pledges made uh, this morning, up to $500, as I mentioned. So your pledge is doubled by calling 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Let's take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we'll hear a conversation uh, that uh, happened oh, recently on Access Utah uh, ahead of an event uh, from Friends of Cedar Mesa and Torrey House Press. It was called Desert Cabal Expanding the Desert Narrative. And we'll hear from Amy Irvine and others following this break. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Etiquette guru Emily Post's great-great-granddaughter Lizzie has written a book about marijuana etiquette, which includes tips on throwing a cannabis party and how to behave at a pot dispensary. What would Emily have thought? I think she would appreciate the book. I don't think she would love my smoking cannabis because she wasn't a fan of smoke in general. That's next time on Here and Now. Listen in this morning at 11 here on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for this uh, Pledge Drive special edition of uh, Access Utah. We're looking for your support for the program. Think about uh, the interviews you've heard on this program, uh, the, the value that you've gotten from that. Assign a dollar value to that. could be large or small. And then the critical thing is the call, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Gail and Ed Weinshanker are doubling your pledge, dollar-for-dollar dollar match, up to $500 this morning. Uh, thanks to them and uh, thanks to you. So, Ken Sanders, before we go to this conversation, which uh, features uh, Amy Irvine, uh, Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, and uh, Kirsten Johanna Allen. I'm interested in a little bit of from your uh, bio. I don't know if I've talked to you about this before. This is the bio on KenSandersRareBooks.com. I'll just read this. Starting with Nancy Drew in childhood and progressing into serious bibliophilia sometime after that, Sanders' fascination with books and printed matters has been lifelong. So Nancy Drew. Well, when you were a young boy in the 50s, you know, uh, I had to sneak read the Nancy Drews. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or put Hardy Boy dust jackets on them. That's right. All the other kids. <laughs> it wasn't kosher, but I'm sorry, Nancy Drew kicks the Hardy Boy's ass. <laughs> They're just better books. Yeah, um, I can't re- I think I read the Hardy Boys. I think I read a few Nancy Drew. So you're, you're saying Nancy Drew better. It's a better series. Oh, I have- there's no question. Yeah, but yeah, there's only there, one of her. But she's twice as good as the Hardy yeah. Boys. <laughs> and yeah, there would have been some serious judging going on. So yeah, you had to put the uh, the, the the Hardy Boys dust jacket on there. Um, so you uh, you're still you're still on Antiques Roadshow. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the that's a future I never envisioned for myself. Um, I will. Yeah. The. Each spring, summer, we go on a tour this year, and that the episodes don't air until the following season. Uh, this year, I will. I'm just. I'm only doing two of them. I'm going to Sacramento, California, and Fargo, North Dakota. I picked Fargo because I I've never ever been there before. Oh, Fargo. Yeah. Okay. 
uh, this will be a good opportunity. We all heard of Fargo. That yeah, yeah. Brothers movie, <laughs> That's you know? right. Yeah, it became they famous. They don't care for that movie up there. Uh, they don't. Yeah, I could see why not. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, is it a fun experience? You, I guess you never know what people bring in. Well, at you know a typical road show, uh, you know we we can be at the the appraisal tables. There's there's a, about oh my gosh. Uh, 20, 24 categories that uh, they appraise in, and there's anywhere from one, two, three, three or huge categories like uh, paintings might have four to six appraisers. And so there might be 50, 60 appraisers approximately at any given show. And just like the local volunteers that help with the show, all of the appraisers, uh, myself included, we're all volunteers. We pay our own way, our airfare, our uh, hotel bills, etc., uh, to to uh, do it, and it, it can be very, very challenging. You're going to sit for eight to twelve hours and look at hundreds and hundreds of items um, and try and make sense of it all. And the odds of you and your guest actually being filmed on the program are pretty doggone low because there's so much stuff. Well, uh, let's, uh, and it's always a kick to, to see, you know, you tune in and you, you see Ken Sanders. It's always fun. Um, so let's go to this, uh, this piece about eight minutes long. This is from a conversation on Access Utah in February. This was ahead of an event uh, which happened on March 1st, uh, presented by Friends of Cedar Mesa and Torrey House Press. A conversation as they uh, build it on the unique ways desert communities can organize around and diversify narratives to protect Utah's red rock landscapes. They called it Desert Cabal, Expanding the Desert Narrative. So involved in this discussion were Amy Irvine, Regina Lopez-Weitzkunk, and Kirsten Johanna Allen. And uh, here is a portion of that uh, conversation on Access Utah. As soon as the sort of this um, new landscape appeared with the the Bears Ears National Monument being eviscerated by 85%. Suddenly there was this, this whole new kind of framework to speak within that really didn't feel like it had any sort of platform before. And so I, you know, I, I think, that, and I'd love to follow up on something that's it's relevant here, but on what Kirsten said. Yes. Your last mm-hmm. question, Tom, and that is that, um, you asked about the people in the rural communities in Utah and throughout the West that are trying, you know, that are trying to make a living on or near public lands, and and the conservation agenda is often at odds with that. In this book, I actually take on sort of the left-leaning, tree-hugging crowds far more than I do um, rural conservative Utah. Um, I feel like we are in a, we're in the eleventh hour in terms of climate change, and whether you. Whatever your feelings are about how climate change has come about, what the reasons are, I think we all know it's changing. Uh, we have profound drought and fires in, in the West now that are really altering our lives. And it's, at this point, it feels to me like we, the most important thing we could do other than point the finger at others is to say, what is my part? What is the, what is the part I can, that I can do to help reverse this, this horrible trend if we really want the earth to go on and we really want the stories to live on and we want something for our children. My child is growing up in an age where she doesn't know if our house will be here. Uh, we live in, in a very, very dry part of southwestern Colorado. She doesn't know, should they do drills at school for school shootings, Colorado being 
sort of the epicenter of that. And um, they're growing up in a very different kind of reality. So it doesn't do me any good to teach her to point the finger at everybody else's bad habits. Really, I have to find out what my part is. And one of the things that I can do right now is is support um, the Bears Ears and Friends of Cedar Mesa in in maybe sort of stepping back a little bit and exercising some restraint because right now those lands are suddenly targeted by a lot of influx of tourism, uh, motorized or non-motorized, and it doesn't even matter. But there's no management plan in place. And so we have to start thinking above and beyond land conservation as we've thought about it before and now in terms of, like, ecological survival. Yeah, I uh, I take your point, Ed, and I was going to ask you about that. You're... you're you're taking to task uh, sort of the liberal side uh, far more than you do the the other side. I want to read this uh, quote to you. Amy Irvine says, No longer can we be voyeurs, uh, catching from scenic pullouts mere glimpses of the wild, uneven territory of our collective unconscious. The hour at hand demands that we molt all that we want and believe we know. Now we must slither, belly to stone, into the dens and burrows of our souls. And you're, you're directing that at the, the people who are <laughs> out there for spiritual reasons, I think. Indeed, and the recreationists, every one of us, every one of us is culpable in what is happening to the planet. And um, and every one of us has different ways that we can scale back our, our impacts. And so it's not so much about, at this point, who's making the worst impact. By just the sheer numbers of us, we are making impacts. And so we have to stop pointing the finger. We have to come back and say, you know, really take inventory in our deepest souls and say, what can I do? What can I give? What can I live without? So that these places may live on. Uh, Regina, I, yeah, I yes, have go one ahead. quick example, too. Yes. Um, this is a place, this is where I think there's a blind spot with, with liberals. For example, in a crowd, and we've had huge crowds at these readings, these book events, um, people are really hungry for this conversation. Um, I'll say, how many of you are opposed to grazing on public land? Every hand goes up in the room. And I say, okay, and how many of you are on the paleo diet? And everybody's hand starts to go up, and they put it back down, and they, they realize, oh, <laughs> I eat a lot of meat, and I oppose grazing. Well, that there's something wrong there. So, you know, like, where are the places that we are missing our own hypocrisies? I, find, I stumble on mine daily, and um, that's the only place I can make a difference. Uh, I want to turn to next to Regina Lopez Weisskunk and uh, and talk about um, this kind of you know realistic point of view that we've just been talking about with Amy Irvine, uh, and I want to frame it uh, under Bear's ears. Um, so a lot of ups and downs and back and forth and and heated debates and um, uh, but but where do we stand right now um, in terms of how how from your point of view to to protect the land based on on where we are right now with the, with the government? Well, I think first and, and foremost, I think everybody needs to, to understand that um, there, are, there are three lawsuits who have been filed, and many people have it confused because they think that the lawsuits have been filed against BLM or other agencies, and actually the lawsuits are filed against President Trump for him pushing pin, doing the one thing that he accused President Obama of doing, which is unilaterally, you know, protecting the land or, or making a decision. Well, he did the same thing, scaling back 85% of what um, 
President Obama designated. Now we ask ourselves, how does that, what can we do, what's going on? I think first we've got to understand really what the political climate is and and really what part do we play in this and do or do I even play a part? Because many people think when, and this is what a lot of Utah elected leaders uh, put out there, is that if you are a Utah, then you can weigh in. But if you don't, then you don't have a say in this issue. But we forget what public means. Public means everybody from one side of the country to the other, from one border to the other. Public is everybody. And we do have a right to public process. How do we participate in that? Every time that they, they call for public comment, we can, we can weigh in. Um, you can talk to your elected leaders, whether you live in the state of Utah or outside. Our voices are those elected individuals that are sitting in our state capitals, that are sitting in Washington, D.C. These are our voices. And largely in part, what the five tribes did was we came together, we shed many, and I say as many years of traditional enemy ties to accomplish a common goal. And, you know, for many generations, indigenous people around the world have always had policies impacting their lives, not because they chose and invited those, but they were all made in the best interest of those indigenous people. Well, these five tribes came together and utilized the tool, the Antiquities Act of 1906, and said, each of us have had this used against us at different points, but we would like to protect this land that's important to us. And by forming allies with many conservation groups, um, community groups, individuals, we showed the power of unity and participating in political process to invoke change based on our cultural beliefs, values, customs, and many generations of, of voices that were overshadowed. Mm. So to take all of that and to culminate it into one push, one movement, shows that we can be united. We can have one voice. And just because we come from a diverse um, environment on many levels does not make things impossible. So there's a portion of a conversation from February ahead of an event uh, on March 1st uh, titled Desert Cabal, Expanding the Desert Narrative. And we heard uh, there from um, Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, preceded by Amy Irvine. Also included in that conversation was uh, Kirsten Johanna Allen. Uh, I'm interested to get your take on this, uh, Ken Sanders. Uh, Edward Abbey, at least in my view, kind of represents an uncompromising view of of activism, uh, protecting lands. Um, uh, You think that, in the long run, is more effective than a conciliatory or compromising view? Or what's more effective? Well, uh, what what those women said. But... Tom, it's uh, Edward Abbey's uh, writings and polemics were written in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and and into the 80s. It's a far different time now, uh, despite some of Ed's prophetic writings about arches and the 
foreseeing the coming of industrial tourism, I can't imagine that Ed Abbey ever dreamed of cars backed five miles into Moab on the highway waiting to get into the park. I I, I don't believe he, he envisioned that. And there's there are... Um, uh, there are too many of us, and just our mere presence is is being destructive. There, I don't pretend to have the answers. Um, I think climate change. Uh, Amy hit it right on the nose. I mean. It, Let's argue all day long about why we have climate change, but is there anyone arguing that we don't have it anymore? Um, every year, every season, the weather just gets weirder and weirder, whether it's a excess of moisture or a drought or too much snow, too little wind, uh, you know, what, what have you. It's it's. It's very, very complicated. I don't have the answers, but... Maybe we're already at the tipping point. I, I hope not, but what are we doing about it? And we have to we have have to act individually. We have to be conscious in our day to day acts. And you know, I'm as guilty of not always doing that uh, as anyone. I, I I do have to on a personal report. I do have to say, I am currently up to let's call it 90% of the time, I, I religiously carry my, my cloth grocery bag with me now, and I, I, I think I'm up to 90% of the time I'm using my tote bag for, for grocery stores. For me, oh, that's yeah. a per, real personal, with my memory, that's a huge victory. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a step we can take. I, my, my wife's been big into that, and, uh, and I've I go with her shopping, so I've come along too. I, but but she's—I have to give her the credit. She's leading out in in that. Yeah, that's a step that we we all can take. Uh, so as we head to break and and uh, and look at uh, the, the reason we're here today, which is to raise money for UPR and Access Utah. Um, in your bio, um, and I missed this. I'm sorry, I did. Uh, uh, together with Alex Caldiero says you hosted Poetry's Wanted Here radio show. That would have yeah, been a fun uh, fun one to Alex tune into. Utah is a Sicilian-born, Brooklyn-raised, Orem, Utah, professor at UVU, and self-proclaimed sinosopher. Uh, basically, he he's interested in the sound of language. We have hosted him here in the shop many, many times. He famously came up to Logan when uh, Utah State University many ten years ago maybe hosted a a uh, beat conference and had famous beat poetry and authors come in from all over the country. Uh, and he recreated every five years. He does a performance of Allen Ginsberg's famous poem, Howl. Oh, that's right, yeah. Most most recently, we had him here for a new book um, that he had come out of about his experiences of a river trip, a Cataract Canyon river trip. And he had him rolling in the aisles because mm-hmm. for him, that river trip was completely and utterly miserable. <laughs> and yeah. in his book-length poem, he talks about why does nature always have to be so unnatural <laughs> and everything in on the river trip he turns into a poem about the water attacking him the bushes attacking him the mosquitoes attacking him the sun attacking him. 
sand attack. And it's just, it's, it's a very, very different take on, on a river trip. <laughs> yeah, that's, he, that sounds fun. He is one reason, one one single person, uh, the late Ellen Malloy, Raven's Exile, you know, our own Terry Tempest Williams, Amy Irvine, I, 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 I don't mean to leave people out, but take the rest of the hour to name them all. We have this treasure of beautiful voices in literary arts and poetic arts and performing arts uh, that are our very own. We have all these national treasures. We've talked many times in the past about Logan's own Mace Swenson, one of the finest American poets. Wallace Thurman, the African-American writer from Salt Lake City during uh, uh, World War One era. And, it, and we, we have these voices, and you and UPR and the Access Show provide these voices uh, uh, an outlet so other people can hear them, and it's so important. And the, uh, you, you keep mentioning this five, up to $500 challenge grants from this generous couple. I assume they're a local couple up there. Uh, yes. So, uh-huh. as I usually like to do, Tom, I want to pledge $100 from Ken Sanders' Rare Books uh, towards that challenge. Oh, grant. Th- thank you so much. Appreciate that. Uh, so, so Ken Sanders has kicked in a hundred dollars, um, and uh, and won't you join him? Um, we've had uh, a call recently here from Helen and Larry Cannon in Logan. So, thank you, Helen and Larry. Yeah. Uh, that's that's so wonderful. Ken Sanders has also contributed. Won't you join your support with theirs? Take advantage of Gail and Ned Weinshanker's dollar for dollar match. They'll double your pledges up to five hundred dollars this morning. Uh, and the place to go, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, uh, or you can go to upr.org. We've got Ken Sanders uh, with us. Uh, Ken Sanders, uh, following the break, we'll hear a, a piece that we got from uh, KZMU in Moab, They uh, a very recent interview with Ken Slight. And I know you know Ken oh. Slight. Old friend. Yeah. So we'll hear that and uh, and talk about uh, Ken and uh, and Glen Canyon and uh, and uh, much else. I'd like to talk. Uh, I think I always bring this up when I talk to you, uh, Ken Sanders. But um, I'm fascinated with Doug Peacock. Uh, just just his his, uh, well, Doug his Peacock his, is a force of nature. <laughs> he is. He is. His story is just fascinating to me. Uh, we'll we'll name drop uh, Doug Peacock following the break as well. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Industrial Tool and Supply, celebrating the Makita Driving Innovation Tour with power equipment, interactive displays, and hands-on demonstration power tools, March 28th from 8 to 5, located at 839 North Main in Logan. More information at industrialtoolandsupply.com. Donna Grantis was one of the busiest guitarists in Toronto, but one morning she became something more. Donna Grantis became Prince's guitarist for four years up until his death in 2016. She drops by to play some music from her solo album and talk about what she learned from her friend Prince. It's coming up on cue from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour... It's music from the part of the world that many people consider paradise, the South Seas. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for South Pacific Islands, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. 
join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, Pledge Drive Special Edition of the program. We're raising money for UPR and for Access Utah. You can call, we hope you will, call 800-826-1495 this morning, 800-826-1495. Or indeed, if the clock shows 7 o'clock hour, um, you would go to upr.org, upr.org. Program's repeated at 7 o'clock. So uh, if, you're, if you're listening at 7 o'clock, it's upr.org. Uh, so your pledge is doubled up to $500 this morning because of the generous listener challenge from Gail and Ned Weinschenker. Uh, so thanks to them. Harry, uh, Helen and Larry Cannon have called. Helen and Larry Cannon, thank you so much. And Ken Sanders, uh, my guest for the hour, has uh, kicked in $100 as well. We appreciate that, as well as him uh, being on. He's certainly doing his part for UPR and uh, for the community, of course. Uh, so before we get to Ken Slight, um, I've had an opportunity to interview Doug Peacock a couple of times. Doug appears in uh, Muck Ranch King, doesn't he? He's he's Hey Duke, I think. Yeah, it's. I mean, none of the 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 the, the gang, uh, you know, seldom seen Smith, uh, uh, Hey Duke, uh, uh, Doc Sarvis, or Bonnie Abzug. They're not literally the four people, but he, Ed certainly took borrowed a lot of characteristics. Uh, and mannerisms from him, and if you've ever known Doug Peacock and read the Monkey Wrench Gang, uh, there's just no question in the mind, the mannerisms, the, the well, not so much anymore, but the foul language and just the behavior uh, are, it's clearly Peacock. Yeah. Um, Doug, you know, was a, a Green, Green Beret medic in Vietnam in the 1960s, and he came home like a lot of young Americans from that war, and he was pretty doggone messed up. We didn't have fancy names for the diseases then. But Doug knew he was sick, and he went out. He couldn't be in cities. He couldn't be around other human beings, and he needed to find something out there bigger on the food chain than he thought he was. So he went into the wilds of Montana and started filming grizzly bears. But he wasn't like the idiot in Alaska that filmed himself getting eaten by one. Doug actually took the time to study the bears and learn them and knew how to behave around them. And uh, if you, it, Doug, Douglas Peacock uh, is a force of nature. Um, I've been down many river trips with him, uh, some other excursions, and what I'd, I guess ultimately what I'd say, Tom, about Peacock is if you were lost somewhere in the world, anywhere, and your goal was to survive it and get out alive, then you'd want Peacock to be with you. It wouldn't be pleasant. In fact, it would be painful. But you'd end up, I'm not saying you'd even come out whole, but he would get you out alive. Mm. He is a seriously a, a force of nature. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. And he's uh, uh, very interesting to talk to, uh, you know, uh, thoughtful in that way, that way, you know, interesting ideas as well when you talk to him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he's written a, a, any number of books. Uh, yeah. uh, the Grizzly Years, uh, uh, you know, four or five titles down. He and his wife, Andrea Peacock, have uh, 
combined on, I think, at least two books now. The Essential Grizzly is one of them, and, and Andrea did a great expose book on all the asbestos contamination uh, in the um, mines uh, in Montana called Libby, Montana. Uh, very great, great active, lifelong activists, and uh, they've been fighting the good fight uh, for a long time now. Mm. I want to get this in. This is an uh, example of partnerships. Uh, this is uh, from KZMU, and uh, this uh, is, includes an interview, uh, portions of interview with uh, Ken Slight. Then we'll talk a little bit about that, about Ken, uh, who uh, Ken Sanders also knows. Um, uh, so uh, for 55 years, the waters of Lake Powell in southeastern Utah have submerged Glen Canyon. Drowned with it are ancient features and sacred sites now known only to memory. Molly Marcello from KZMU Radio in Moab talked with legendary river runner Ken Slight about these places as he once knew them when the river ran wild. Knowing at my age, uh, going on 90 now, I felt like it was the uh, only thing I could do now to preserve the Grand Canyon would be maybe preserve some of the artifacts. And that's what we did. Slight and a large team of writers, artists, friends, and neighbors put together an exhibit to remember Glen Canyon before its damming in 1963. It's open at the John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River, Utah, until the end of March. I feel like for a lot of people, when they think of Ken Slight, they think of Glen Canyon. Ryan Savino, one of the lead curators of Glen Canyon, a river guide remembers. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that for so many years, it's been so big and important to him, and he's continued to speak about it and write about it, be an advocate for Glen Canyon. So I think, like, at this point, at least in my mind, as far as living river runners and river historians and legends, like, Ken is the truest person to tell the story of Glen Canyon. Slight started his river guiding career in Glen Canyon in 1955, just as the dam's blueprints were coming together. He ran trips until there was no river left to run, and this experience turned him into a well-known activist for the protection of wild places. At the exhibit, curators sought to recreate a classic Ken Slight river trip, modeling its course after a 1959 journal entry of one of his passengers. We start at height, which is River Mile... 162.3. Okay. Oh, wow, what is this? So that's one of the, or this is a pump that was used in Glen Canyon. And you can actually, if you want, you can try to, or you can pump it. Journeying down the river, we meet other legendary characters of the canyon. There's Bert Loper, who lived in Glen Canyon in a cabin he called the Hermitage. Then there's Jean-Field Foster, who did her best to document artifacts and features before the waters rose. Each day we kind of have a different theme, kind of similar how on a river trip. You know, maybe you're going to go past a cabin and so you're going to talk about that historical person or whatnot. There's activists like Katie Lee, river runners like Georgie White, and Dave Rust, considered the first outfitter in the region. And then there's the canyon itself. One of the highlights of the Glen Canyon exhibit for Slight is a photograph blown up to cover an entire wall. It shows Rainbow Bridge, spanning over 200 feet long and nearly 300 feet high. It's a place of incredible sacred significance to many indigenous people, including the Diné, the Hopi, San Juan Southern Paiute, Kaibab Paiute, and White Mesa Ute. 
Now this next one is called Farewell to Rainbow, and it's also among my protest poetry. Years ago, I, uh, when they started putting the water up into Rainbow Bridge National Monument, I didn't like that at all. And a bunch of us uh, brought suit against the government uh, to keep the waters out of Rainbow Bridge National Monument. They had the water going right up under the arch. Of course, I was fearful that uh, the additional water underneath might topple the arch itself. I still believe it. And so we watch with great chagrin as water rises up from glen. At your very foundations it does lap, ever eroding your strength to sap. All so unnecessary, this great mishap. So sacred rainbow standing high. Just the idea of having a, a huge picture of Rainbow Bridge at the exhibit delighted me very much. It told the visitors to the museum how important Rainbow Bridge was. You know, we decided early on that we wanted the exhibit to be more about experiencing it as it was and not focusing on what all has been lost, although that is the underlying current. You get through the exhibit and you think, that's incredible, and oh wait, I can't see this anymore. This is all underneath the reservoir. Like hearing Bob Quist and Ken and Stuart Reader, they were talking one day about getting to Hidden Passage, which is this one side canyon, and they're talking about how it's so muddy and like, oh, do you remember that mud? And the little bluegills would be nipping at your toes. And um, it was exciting, it felt happy, but kind of underlining it all, it was still like, oh, this, there's a sense of loss kind of with it all. I think that uh, we've tried to put the word out over and over and over again uh, how much has been lost and uh, why destroy something so beautiful has been the message all the time. They can bring up a lot of other reasons not to have the uh, dam or they can bring up a lot of reasons for the dam. But the one essential thing was it was so beautiful so beautiful and to do what they did with it is a real travesty. Already a lot of people, uh, writers and so forth, have noted that same thing of how beautiful it was and why they did it. And I still don't know why. Slight dreams about the water receding, side canyons returning, Like Glen Canyon itself, he hopes the exhibit will see another life soon. The team is currently working on an online exhibit and hopeful for other physical spaces to show the artifacts. Glen Canyon, a river guide remembers, is open until Saturday, March 23rd at the John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River, Utah. So that uh, closed on Saturday, but as you heard there, they're uh, working to to get... uh, at least elements of that exhibit up online. So we'll look forward to, to that. I hope you caught that in uh, Green River. Sounded like a great exhibit. We talked about that several times here on Access Utah. And uh, just have about oh, three or four minutes left in the program. Uh, Mention the number to uh, support this kind of programming. Your pledge, large or small, is much appreciated. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. 
And another salient point, your pledge is doubled up to $500 this morning because of a, a generous uh, challenge from Gail and Ned Weinschenker, 800-826-1495. Uh, so, Ken Sanders, you uh, you know Ken Slight. What, what you tell us about Ken? Boy, a flood of memories there, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ken, Ken Slight taught me how to row a boat in the late 1970s, though some people would take exception to that, claiming I still don't know how to row one. <laughs> um, but it, it, in, in our National Park Service system, I think we knew, for people like Ken, Ken Slide, we need a new designation. We need a National Historic Person designation. And Ken Slide ought to be the first, in, first batch of inductees. i got to give a shout-out to Ryan, the young woman whose voice you heard in the movie. Without her efforts and patience with Ken and out of his, his man cave Quonset hut down there above Pack Creek and battling, you know, Pontavirus and all and decades of rat droppings to excavate all of Ken's so called archives and work with the Green River Museum, the John Wesley Powell Museum. Uh, my hat's off to, to, to that young lady for her sacrifice on the part of something that she sensed was much bigger than herself. And then when she started it, she knew nothing about it. Way to go, Ryan. Yeah, that's much-needed work, right? And uh, we, we have yes. people that do that work. Thank she's, you to them, yes. She's an example of a young person making a difference. Yeah. Oh, and before we're out of time, if I could get a shameless plug for a free event that would be of interest okay. to your, yeah. uh, uh, view viewers, listeners, um, this summer, a Frenchman friend of mine I've got to know over the past five years, Emmanuel Tellier, has... Uh, devoted those five years to coming to Utah, and he has made a brilliant documentary film about one Everett Roos, who, as we all know, disappeared in Escalante in 1934. Uh, As part of some travels this summer in late July and early August, we will be showing the North American premiere of the Everett Roos movie in Escalante, the Escalante Showhouse at Moab, Star Hall, and here in Salt Lake City, and all of the uh, filmings will be free. Uh, so, uh, when is that happening? Yeah, yeah I don't have the, okay. the right uh, we'll, dates. Okay, we'll on. get it's it. The end. Uh, yeah. You can go to the Ken Sanders Rare Books website. Okay, uh, soon. I don't think we quite have it up yet. Yeah, uh, uh, and find out. Well, and and uh, you know maybe in a, an on-air appeal to uh, maybe we could get the, uh, the filmmaker on with us on Access Utah ahead of that. Uh, we certainly can arrange that. Tom. Yeah, that would be that would be wonderful. All right, we'll be in touch with you about that. So, uh, Ken Sanders, uh, just a couple minutes left. Maybe a, a, a final appeal. What would you say to to uh, listeners on the need to support public radio? Well, I keep I, I feel like a broken record. I, <laughs> we need this country, this world. We need more diversity, not less. And that means in people. That means in places. It means in all parts of our lives, from you know the arts to to recreation to everything. We we need the as uh, I think Wendell Berry called it the solace of wild things. Uh, we need it, and we don't have enough outlets and voices. Ironically, this this 21st century technological technological age we live in, with these cell phones, with my these computer terminals, with our laptops, with our, our social medias, 
it's made everything instantaneously accessible, but yet I think it makes us remoter and remoter from the real world and from each other. In fact, my latest epiphany, um, when my credit card machines wouldn't work at the recent Sacramento Book Fair, is I think all of this technology, these, these stupid phones that we voluntarily carry around with us, perhaps they're the real new terrorists of the 21st century. And what happens when they don't work anymore? Can we even remember what we used to do without them? <laughs> yeah, I, I hope we can. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, uh, the number is 800-826-1495. Your support for UPR and for Access Utah, much appreciated. We're thanking you in advance. 800-826-1495. You can go to upr.org as well. Ken Sanders, always a great pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. StoryCorps has been curating conversations between loved ones for years. Now they're attempting to put strangers together, people on opposite sides of the political divide, to have a conversation. The project is called One Small Step. UPR is one of six stations nationwide selected to participate. We'll be traveling Utah collecting these conversations with the hope that we'll all realize we have much more in common than we think we do. If you're interested, we'd love to have you participate. Just go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link. That's upr.org. Click on One Small Step.